Hello everyone, this is Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jude 3 Project, and I just want to take this time to personally thank all of our monthly supporters. We could not do what we do without giving from people like you. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. And if you're not a monthly supporter and you would like to become one, you can go to jude3project.org and hit the donate tab and sign up. We are grateful for you and we hope you enjoy today's new episode. God bless. Hello, welcome to the Jew 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew 3 Project. Welcome, everyone. This is uh, another edition of the Jude 3 Project. Uh, we are so excited for this special live event. Um, we're covering something so simple, uh, problematic passages in the in the Bible. Uh, no, no problems at all. Uh, I am Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jude 3 Project, and I'm so excited that you joined with us tonight. Um, do me a favor, invite somebody, tag them. Um, host a watch party. I think this is going to be an amazing conversation. Uh, we have two amazing scholars that are not only amazing scholars, but are good friends of mine and are people that I know that not just love to learn, but they actually love Jesus. And I'm so excited that they're joining me tonight. Um, put in the comment section where you're where you're watching from, because we want to to hear that. Uh, we have some people that sent their questions ahead of time, which I'm so excited about uh, you guys sent some very um, thought provoking questions uh, that we will dive into momentarily. But if you have a question, also you feel free to submit them into the comment section on YouTube or uh, Facebook. Uh, we have some people going through um, and we, we will pick some questions from there. Now, if you heard the promo video, you know I already said that we probably won't get to all of the questions tonight. We're only gonna be on here for 90 minutes. So um, we would be on here for days trying to go through all the problematic passages in scripture. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for supporting the G3 project. Um, we're gonna dive right in by introducing our guests, um, Dr. Joe Vitale and Dr. Esau McCauley. Welcome guys. Hi, good evening. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Inviting me. <laughs> I'm excited to see see all of you. Uh, well, not all of you, but it's only two of you. But um, <laughs> excited to have you on. Um, let's start with an Old Testament scholar, uh, Dr. Joe Vitale. Give Vitale, give our audience just a little bit of background about who you are. Sure. Hi, everyone. It's so good to be here with you tonight. Um, my name is Joe. I live in Atlanta, but obviously you can tell by the accent. I'm not a native. I think my official status with the American government is resident alien. I, I've been living here for three years. I'm from England. Um, I have a background in the Old Testament, particularly uh, studying the uh, portrayal of women and beauty and honor and shame culture in the Old Testament and how women are presented there. Uh, but I also work uh, full time over here at the uh, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries headquarters. So I spend a lot of my time just helping people understand the Christian faith, think, thinking through some of their hard questions about God and figure out, you know, whether he exists, what's his character like, is he a God that they want to know? So that's who I am. I have a one-year-old upstairs who's struggling to fall asleep. So if you hear screaming, that is why. <laughs> it's great to be here with you tonight. 
Awesome. Thank you for for joining us so so late in in the evening. I know your your um your son is probably used to you being with him at this time. So thank you for uh, pulling away to be with us tonight. Uh, Dr. Esau McCauley, tell our audience a little bit about who you are. Yes, my name is Esau McCauley. I I'm a priest in the Anglican Church of North America. I teach New Testament at Wheaton College. My specialization is Paul and African-American biblical interpretation. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I did my PhD at the University of St. Andrews. I graduated, I think in 2017. I've written in a bunch of different places, Christianity Today, Washington Post, New York Times. I have a book coming out in November called Reading While Black, African-American biblical interpretation as an exercise in hope. So that's what's been occupying most of my time the last <laughs> few months. And now it is officially done and yeah. you all will see it. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining us. Before we start and dive into these um, problematic passages and these questions, um, I want you both to give us a framework for dealing with problematic passages, how you deal with passages in the Bible that when you're like reading and you get to that, you're like, ah, that's, that's interesting. I don't, I don't know about this guy. Um, how do you navigate this? I'll, I'll go old then new. Uh, so, Dr. Yeah. Dr. Vitale. Sure. I, I love that you asked this question. I remember when I was a teenager, me and my sister were watching a, a PG-13 rated movie when my grandfather, who was kind of very old-fashioned, walked in during like the one scene in the film that you really don't want your grandfather walking in on. I remember he just shook his head and said, don't you girls have anything better to watch? And then he left the room. And I remember thinking, oh, Jesus, I need you to come back now because I can't ever look him in the eye again. Uh, but the more I think about it, the more I think, how often do we do that with the Old Testament, what my grandfather did, did um, you know, we walk in on a scene, we immediately assume the worst without taking the time to figure out what is going on. And then we walk out again, feeling full of judgment rather than, than giving it a chance. And, you know, with over 30,000 verses in the Bible, it's hardly surprising that some of them are going to be really hard for us to understand. And particularly in the Old Testament, uh, you know, when I moved to Atlanta a few years ago, I didn't know that big hair was a thing. I'd never driven on the right side of the road I didn't know people love pickles so much so the pickle aisle in the supermarket was kind of a shock never had Chick-fil-a never met a Southern Baptist it was like stepping into a completely different world but how much more is that true of the Old Testament when we're dealing with a culture thousands of years ago uh, that is just so radically different from our own so sometimes we're going to have to work hard to understand the context and the culture of the text that we're reading so for me a framework that helps me firstly two uh, common misconceptions about the Old Testament that I think a lot of people have. One is that the Bible is kind of like a, a fairy tale book of perfect people living perfect lives and everything that's going on in the Old Testament, God just gives it like a big thumbs up. Actually, that couldn't be further from the truth. Most of the Old Testament, because it's the story of what happens after the fall, after people have turned their backs on God and everything's gone wrong, it means that what the Old Testament is doing is it's recounting both the highs, but also the extreme lows of human behavior, among other things, stories of abuse, incest, murder, rape, violence, slavery, the worst kinds of human nature on display. And, and so you might go so far as to say, actually, the majority of the behavior in the Old Testament isn't there because God is commending it but rather because he condemns it. And I think we have to bear that in mind. A second thing is that I think a lot of people assume the Bible is just a book of morals or rules directly telling us how to live. And sometimes that's true. We do have laws in the Old Testament, but far more than that, we have stories and stories don't always 
function that way. They don't necessarily spell out for you the moral tale in this kind of neat conclusion. It takes more discernment. You're invited into the story to participate, to encounter God. And so I think it helps just to think of the framework of the Bible as this grand narrative, the story of God's relationship with his people, the story of salvation that culminates in Jesus Christ. And so with that in mind, here are just seven questions to help you as you're engaging with a hard passage. Number one would be, where does this fit in the grand story? What came before this passage? What came after it? Uh, and, and how are we going to make sense of it? So for example, if you're in the Old Testament and you're reading the law codes, you immediately know, actually, these don't apply to me in the same way today. I'm a New Testament person. I'm, I'm at, in the new covenant. So I can read these the Old Testament to get an understanding of the character of God, the history of God's people. But actually, I don't live under those laws in the same way anymore. Secondly, you want to know what kind of literature are you reading in that moment? Is it a story, a genealogy, a legal code, a prophecy, a song, a poem? That's going to make a big difference to how it should be read. Thirdly, does this passage contradict anything else that you've read in scripture, because I kind of work by the principle that scripture interprets scripture. It is all the word of God. He's not going to contradict himself. Often there are nuances to it. But if it seems like there's a contradiction, I think that's a really good clue for us that actually maybe there is more going on in this passage than meets the eye. And we need to dig a bit deeper. A fourth question for you is how does what you're reading compare to the surrounding customs of the time? Are there any ancient practices that we don't immediately understand in the 21st century, but that are actually going to shed light on what is going on? And that might take a little bit of reading some commentaries uh, to help you figure that one out. Number five, is there a contrast in this passage between human behavior and God's behavior? You can't assume they're one and the same. And then number six, if this is a law code in particular, it's always really good to ask the question, who is it protecting? You know, if you put a fence around something, it's because there's something of value that you're guarding. And I think it's the same with the law. We focus on the punishment so often that we miss out on, on what is the law protecting? What could be so important, so sacred that God is so concerned to preserve it that he puts strong laws around it? And I find that that question clears up a lot of misunderstandings. And then finally, if you're in the Old Testament, I think it's always worth asking the question, how does this story point ultimately to Jesus? How is he the completion of this tale? How is he the full revelation? How is he showing us a new thing from a new perspective of what God is doing compared to how it was done in the past? Those are just a few pointers for you to help you if you're really struggling in some of those hard Old Testament passages. Thank you. That's really, really helpful. Um, you're up, Esau. Oh, thank you. I would say that um, part of what I do as a scholar, or one of the one of the parts of part of my journey of faith, was trying to figure out like how to deal with problematic passages. I would say that like Black Christianity in the United States began with the issue of a problematic passage because um, African Americans were first given the Bible and said that this Bible condemn um, supports your oppression. This Bible says that you're inferior. This Bible says you're under the curse of Ham. And so the early African-American Christians had to figure out a way they're going to worship the God revealed in these texts to read the Bible in a different way than their slave, the people who enslaved them. And one of the things that you see in the early African-American interpretive tradition is what I would call the canonical instinct. There's a guy named James Pennington who says, I'm not going to argue with you about whether or not the Bible deals with the issue of slavery. He says, 
is the Bible, is slavery consistent or inconsistent with God's moral character? And is it consistent or inconsistent with, with God, the God who we see revealed throughout the entirety of the canon? And so what I, what I want to say is that when I come to a passage that gives me trouble, I try to say, well, what does the entirety of the scriptural witness tell me about this text? So in the face of a time where um, African-Americans were being told, you should simply be content with your position as a slave, we said, well, there's this whole book in the Bible called the Exodus, where God says that he's going to set people free. We think that this is a, a better representation of God's will for humanity. And so what I want to say is the first thing is the canonical instinct, to look at the entirety of the Bible when dealing with any particular text. The other one is what I want to say is theological interpretation. God has revealed what he is like in the scriptures. And so if we come to an interpretation of a passage that is in contradiction of God's revealed character consistently throughout the narrative, then we recognize from a theological perspective that our interpretation has run amok. And I would say the third thing I want to say is that we have to keep the cross in front of us. Because I think it's somewhere in Hebrews, forgive me for not being able to toss Bible verses, but it says that God has spoken to us in many times in many places. In these last days, he's spoken to us through his son, who is, in effect, the climax of the covenant, the full revelation of God's nature. So if you want to understand what God is like, you need to read the Gospels. And so the, the Jesus who is revealed in the Gospels is the full manifestation of God's character. And so if there is an interpretation of a passage, there's a contradiction of what we know about God especially as revealed to us in the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, then it is clear that our interpretation has run amok. And so I was just going to say three. I don't got seven. I apologize because maybe I didn't, I didn't prepare like you did. So I got three. The, the African-American canonical instinct is important. The African-American theological interpretation rooted in what we understand of God's character. And three, the full revelation of that character is seen in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, who shows us both who God is, how God is in reality, and who we are as human beings, right? This is, sorry, this, this, I'm going to stop preaching here, but I'll say this. You get to the very, you get to um, Jesus beaten and bloody, standing before Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate shows him to the crowd, and Pontius Pilate says, behold the human, right? And so Jesus, as beaten and bloody and, and, and disrespected, is what it means to fully be human. And so Jesus in his life, death, resurrection reveals to us both what God is like and what the human destiny is supposed to be. And so any behavior or action that contradicts who Jesus is, is a misinterpretation, I think, of scripture's intent. Awesome. That is so, so helpful. Y'all are so brilliant. Um, I'm just reminded of that every time I get a chance to talk to y'all. Um, and it's I, a pandemic, so I'm going to preach at any moment. So I'm just going to let you know, I'm, I'm coming here hot. <laughs> it's a pandemic. Okay. Bring it. Well, I might plead the blood in a minute. I don't know. <laughs> Look, there's not an organ in here. So we're going to start with the Old Testament. This is such an a, a easy question, uh, Dr. Vitaly. Why didn't I believe you? <laughs> Uh, the question says, in Genesis 19.8, why does it seem like Lot used his daughters as a scapegoat for an evil thing? Is God unjust or cruel to women, acting weird in the Old Testament? Um, on the origin of Moab, 
uh, Moabites and Amorites, daughters of Lot, did, did something uncalled for by sleeping with their drunk father. Uh, so this is kind of a compound question. And I know you already saw the question, so I'll just I'll leave that there and not give you <laughs> all five in the in the question um, at one time. Yeah, thank you, Lisa. Yeah, let's not mess around. Let's just start here. It's such a good question, though. I met a student a couple of years ago on a university campus who um, was interested in Christianity, and a friend had said to her, "Hey, just go away and read the Bible. That will resolve all your problems." But what they hadn't done is actually told her how to go about reading the Bible. So she started reading in Genesis, and then she gets to this story about Lot, and it was this huge issue for her. And that I remember her coming to me and saying, "What is going on in the Bible? Why is God okay with with Lot?" sleeping with his daughters how can he approve of this kind of behavior so it's it's a fair question um just to give you a little background on genesis 19 so lot is hosting these angels that god has sent to the city men who are both coming to ju judge the city but also to rescue lot and his family but when they get there uh, the house is surrounded by a group of violent men who want to rape these guests as a display of their kind of abusive power over them and so this kind of gross parody of manners lot tries to fulfill his responsibilities as a host who has a duty to protect those who stay in his house and yet how does he do that by offering instead his own two daughters to sacrifice them to to the men outside to do whatever they want with them to save the guests and you read this and you're like could this be more backward how is it that even before being a host he's neglecting his duty as a father to take care of his children how can he not value his daughters and shouldn't it be the case that a father should first sacrifice himself but that doesn't even seem to cross his mind and unfortunately that's actually a familiar pattern in the old testament we see men sacrificing the very women who they have a responsibility to protect and honor so you see it with abraham and sarah when abraham tells sarah his wife to pretend to be his sister so pharaoh won't kill him to take her from him and but in doing so he basically ensures that she is going to be taken into the household of pharaoh and sexually abused in that context so he throws her under the bus we see the same thing in judges 19 the levite priest again when his house the house is surrounded by violent men who want to rape rape him instead they throw his concubine out the door and she's gang raped all night and left for dead so horribly this is a pattern in the old testament but what's what's kind of bizarre about this text is you also see the reverse happening a little bit later on where understandably these daughters who've been treated as sexual bargaining chips by their father they actually go on and they treat their father in exactly the same way they turn it around so they fled the city the daughters want to have children but they are married and so they get their father drunk and then they rape him while he is asleep to get pregnant and so this whole thing is just this kind of crazy narrative. And you've asked the question, is God unjust or cruel to women acting bizarrely in the Old Testament? And you also asked, why, if not, has God allowed this story to be recorded in Scripture? What is he trying to say? And I think what's clear from this passage is that actually these are not the actions of God. I've already said the Bible is not a fairy tale of perfect people. And in fact, contrary to the behavior of the father and the behavior of the daughters, the only one who acts with justice in this story and acts to protect the women are the very angels that God has sent who the father is trying to sacrifice his daughters for. In other words, when, when men see women as expendable, God clearly does not. He keeps them safe, he preserves their lives, and he rescues them from the city. So far from displaying the cruelty of God, this story actually shows the mercy of God. So then we might ask, well, why allow this story in the Bible? Why is it here? And, and I think the point is to show what happens when we as humans are left 
to our own devices. It's a clear picture of human nature at its worst. And if you look at that big picture story of the Bible that we were talking about, the story of God's salvation history, then a big part of that story is actually to show precisely why people need saving so badly, what they need saving from. And so because of that, although it's a really depressing story, I actually find it really refreshing when I read stories in the Bible like this, stories of horror and injustice and abuse, because the truth is we all know that we live in a world that's so often like that, that is horrific and unjust and abusive. And so if the Bible didn't reflect that reality, how could it speak to our reality. What good is a book of fairy tales? And recently we've had so much conversation in our culture about the Me Too movement and church too. And and one of the accusations is that the church has been guilty of a religious cover-up in so many instances. I think how important is it for victims to know that the God of the Bible refuses to participate in religious cover-up? Far from it. In the Bible, we see God who exposes sin, who puts it right front and center in the pages of scripture time and time again to let us know he sees the situation clearly and he's not shying away from it. He won't allow sin and abuse and injustice just to be kind of like swept under the carpet. But nor is he going to let it have the final word. This is his salvation story. We see what he's saving us from, but we also know he's coming for us, coming in the person of Jesus to ensure that that justice isn't going to be trampled on, but nor is death going to triumph because in Jesus, we will see the justice and the mercy of God both revealed in full measure. And so I think that's just one little glimpse of the beginning of the story of where we're ultimately headed. We're seeing what needs saving, but we also know that there's a hope uh, that we're working towards ultimately. I think that's why this story is in the Bible. Am I allowed to talk about the Old Testament? Can I come in? I want to say a couple of things about Lot and then yeah. I, I know we got other stuff we got to do, but a couple of things is when Lot finds himself in Sodom and Gomorrah, there is no sense in that he's actually uncomfortable in that immoral culture, right? So there is no evidence in Genesis that, that Lot's going around this whole time saying, I can't believe Sodom and Gomorrah is wicked. But I'm unhappy here. So, 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 so Lot's character, as it is revealed in the Old Testament, is already shady. We know that there's an issue with, as it relates to Lot and trying to manipulate some of the land as it relates to him and Abram. And so you see that one of the things revealed in what Lot does with his daughters is that immorality isn't contained, right? And so his greed, as it relates to trying to acquire land, his comfort in an exploitative culture eventually comes to his house and it comes into his family. And so when you talk about morality being holistic, you see what happens when someone without character is put in a place where he has to make a moral decision. And as we've seen in the way that his character is revealed throughout the rest of the narrative, we should expect Lot to do what a sinful person does, which is do what what he feels necessary to save himself and continue on in life. And so I think that as you read the story of Lot, which he's already talked, said, you should not say, this is a person whose character I want to emulate. <laughs> what you should say as you read through the story of Lot is, God was gracious that that brother is alive at all, at any mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's that's a, a great um, addition to uh, to Joe's thought. Um, we're going to move to New Testament. I'm going to try to do one old, one new to uh, break it up a little bit. Uh, <laughs> um, 
So first Timothy, Edward acts first Timothy two, 12 through 15 appears to be clear on the, on the Ephesian woman teaching and exercising authority in gatherings or churches in Ephesus. Paul gives Eve's transgression as the reason women should not teach or exercise authority. Because Paul uses Genesis 3 to bring light to this, how does his permission apply today? What are helpful ways of understanding this passage to better apply it today? And what does verse 15 even mean? Um, and okay. how, yeah. <laughs> So I, I'm glad. I, I came in. You said you was coming in hot, so yeah. I was. I was. Uh, well, actually, to... actually, believe it or not, I just gave a forty-five minute lecture on in God's providence in my class. So I'm not going to give y'all forty-five minutes on um, what's going on in Ephesus, but I'll just point out a couple of things, and you can look this up when you have time. Um, and by the way, I think that um, Paul, I think that in the early church, there were men and women involved in ministry. It included the verbal proclamation of the gospel. There were women teachers, which we can get to if you want, if you want me to follow up. But I'll say this about um, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. First is, if you read 1 Timothy chapter 1, you see Paul instructing Timothy to rebuke people who engage in false teachings related to genealogies and myths. If you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4, you see Paul talking about um, 1 Timothy chapter 4, I think it's verse 3. Paul's rebuking people who are um, forbidding marriage. And so we know that there is some heresy going on in Ephesus related to genealogies, myths, and something related to marriage. And we can actually add a fourth one there, which she said in verse 15, or the person said in verse 15, where about women being saved through childbearing. And so there was also something as related to birth. So in Ephesus, we know that um, the Artemis cult was prominent there. You see it both in Acts and just in what we know of the Greco-Roman world. And Artemis had um, was one of the goddesses who controlled fertility. And so you would give offerings to Artemis and she would protect you through childbirth. And the other thing that we know about Artemis is that um, she was seen in the, in the story around her creation that she was created first and she was superior to her consort who was with her. So there's teachings related to marriage, there is something related to sex and childbirth, and there's something related to genealogies. And this is at least one reconstruction that we think makes sense. And this is not rooted in stereotype, but this is you'll, you'll see why I'm gonna say this is a heresy that might be popular among women. Because of the gospel, Jesus has come and set us free. And one of the things that this teaching we think said was that women no longer either have to be married or to have babies and reproduce because now, as a Christian, you don't have to simply be fruitful to multiply. If you want another Christian, you can just evangelize one. And so this whole emphasis on women giving birth to children has now been replaced. And so you can imagine in the Greco-Roman world where there was tons of, there was a high fertility, not a high fertility rate, a very high rate of women who died during childbirth, there came to be this teaching that you no longer should have sex with your husband. You no longer have to worry about having a baby. And if you are considering marriage, you don't have to be married at all. And possibly under the influence of the Artemis Diana cult, you have this idea that it was Eve um, who was created first and not Adam, and that Eve was the one who's superior, not the man, and so the women should be in charge of the church. So you can imagine in a world where women have a high um, mortality rate, 
that the, that the teaching that women should stop having sex will be super popular among the women and not super popular amongst the men. You can imagine there probably wasn't any dudes running around in the church saying, everybody stop having sex. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm trying to tell you what the Bible says. So Paul then um, says, you know what? What we're going to do is we're going to tell the women they need to learn, allow the women to learn, actually what he says. Allow the women to learn in full submission, not just to any man, but to the duly respected or duly um, put in place elders in the congregation. And so when Paul says, I do not allow a woman to teach nor exercise authority, that word there that we use for in exercising authority, tail. forgive me if my Greek pronunciation isn't accurate because I don't have it in front of me. It is not the normal word for use for authority. There's a word used for exercise authority that's used a hundred times in the New Testament. This word is only used once. And there's a huge debate in the, in the literature as to whether or not this word means for a woman to actually exercise authority in any form of fashion, or if it refers to a woman usurping authority or domineering in her exercise of authority. And so what I think Paul is saying is not that women aren't allowed to exercise authority in any form or fashion, but that the women who've usurped the authority of their of men, rooted in this retelling of the Adam and Eve story, are to cease this, this text. So you can go and take a look and look at the, how this word is used in the Greco-Roman culture. And what I want to say is what Paul is, is, is outlawing in First, in First Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, is not an authority that is given to men that he's holding back from women. What he's saying is this kind of authority, this usurping of authority in the imposition of your will is something that no Christian should do. Because Christian leadership is never about the imposition of your will. Christian leadership is never about who gets to say who's in charge. Christian leadership is always cruciform. And so very beginning this whole conversation with who is in charge and who should sit down is a misunderstanding of how the gospel works. The whole point is Jesus inverts authority. But anyways, what I want to say is I think what Paul is saying is he does not think that women should, ex- should teach in such a way as they usurp the authority of the people who are put in place in the congregation. Instead, they should learn from uh, they should learn proper teaching. The important thing to keep in mind here is there is often a huge education gap between the men of the congregation, who will sometimes be as early as old as 30 and 35 if you're the husband, and maybe you're 15 or 16 if you are the wife. I know that was weird. Those are the Bible times. You got to get over that part. And so what Paul is actually saying is we want to allow these women to learn. We don't want them to usurp authority. And then the final part, I don't think Paul is saying women have to be in place because of the creation order. I think what Paul is actually doing is correcting the Artemis myth and saying it was not Eve who was created first, but it was Adam. And it was not Adam who was deceived, it was Eve. And so actually what Paul is doing is saying, if you really want to talk about like the creation story, this is how it happens. And so then when he says, a woman will be saved by child through childbearing, what he's trying to say is this, listen, I know you're tempted to go to Artemis, and I know you're tempted to refrain from sex because you're afraid of getting pregnant, because you're afraid of childbirth. Trust Jesus. And he will get you through this dangerous thing. So long story short, I think that in um, 1 Timothy, um, you have evidence of the heresy there. I think that you also have evidence that what Paul is talking about is not the normal exercise of authority, but the usurping of authority rooted in this um, myth that I think was influential in the church there. I could say more, but then you'll make me give you the whole lecture. <laughs> yeah. Preach. Preach. <laughs>
So I, I actually, I actually am going to say this. I'm going to say this, then I'll leave it alone. So um, this, this, is, this is what I want to say. I found myself, because I used to have a different reading of First Timothy 2, chapter 12, and I found myself consistently trying to explain away the data in the Old and New Testament. And this is what I meant. I found myself saying, yeah, Deborah was a prophetess, but that doesn't really count as um, exercising authority, even though it's, she says judging Israel, and normally judging means actually rendering decisions. But that doesn't mean what that means. And sure, you see Miriam running around prophesying, saying things that end up recorded in the canon, in this authoritative scripture, but Miriam song does it as a count as teaching. And then I'd say, okay, sure, you see Aquila and Priscilla, but that doesn't really count because they were a male-female team and everything was done in private. And sure, you see women at Pentecost, and they're out there preaching with the men, but that doesn't count because it's evangelistic. And then I say, sure, you see people like Junie, but Junie is an apostle. That must be some exception. And Phoebe isn't a deacon. And the two women who are contending side by side for Paul in the gospel really weren't preaching. And I just found myself trying to explain away too much data. And it, it felt much easier to me to say, when I look at the phenomenon of the New Testament, when I look at the casual conversations about what you see going on in the lived experience of people, you see men and women engaged in ministry side by side. I'm not your pastor. I'm not your bishop. And what names you put on that is up to you and your own theological discernment. But I don't think there's a viable reading of the New Testament that doesn't have women preaching the gospel in some form of fashion alongside men. Mm-hmm. Dr. Vitale, you want to add something to that? You know what? I really don't, actually. That was glorious. Every time I speak anywhere, someone asks me about that passage. So it's so nice to hear somebody else answering it in such a beautifully God-honoring, robust way. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we're we're going to move to another Old Testament question uh, that's, you know, fairly, fairly simple like the rest. Um, this one comes from Christina. She says, there are many passages or stories in Judges that leave me scratching my head. Me too, Christina. Could the guest scholars provide insight on why we are told Jephthah made a vow to the Lord to sacrifice a human in Judges 11 verses 30 through 31? Yeah, I think, Christina, we are, we're right there with you. There's a lot of weird, bizarre harmful, devastating things that go on in the book of Judges. And I think the question we often find ourselves asking is, is God really okay with this? Like, what is going on? And one of the phrases I find really helpful, it's a refrain in the book of Judges, and that that kind of is like a commentary on what's going on at the time that that offers insight for us is, uh, one example of it is in Judges 17, verse 6. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And I find this to be a really interesting phrase. Lisa and I have spoken about it before uh, because often uh, on, on the college campuses today, particularly in the United States, I'll frequently hear students saying, saying things like there's no such thing as an objective right or wrong. It's all just a matter of personal preference. Nobody has the right to judge or condemn anybody else's behavior, which is kind of an ironic statement when you think about it, because this generation more than any other is one that is clamoring loudly for social justice, which kind of begs this 
interesting question of if you don't believe in right and wrong, why are you so concerned with putting to right the world's wrongs? There's a bit of a contradiction there. But but in other words, today, I think we're also living in a culture that this phrase fits perfectly. We've rejected God as king. There is no king. And instead, we're embracing the idea that everybody just gets to do what is right in their own eyes. We decide for ourselves. And in that sense, I think judges is this really helpful warning to us. Look what happens. Look how weird and crazy and harmful and devastating a culture becomes uh, when people just do whatever they want. Uh, that's why in Judges 19, you have that concubine who's gang raped and left for dead. That's why Jephthah makes this reckless, ill-considered vow before the Lord. where He basically says, if God gives him military victory, then he's going to sacrifice the first person, whoever is the first to meet him at the door of his home when he gets back. Now, the tragic irony here is that if he truly means this to, to be a pleasing sacrifice to God, he couldn't be more in contradiction to actually the desire and will of God, a God who makes that abundantly clear throughout scripture from the story of Abraham and Isaac to the law, to the complaints of numerous prophets. There's nothing God despises more than human sacrifice, particularly the sacrifice of one's own child. And that's who walks through the door. It's his own daughter. And indeed, it's for that reason that we see God acting so strongly against the Canaanites during those conquest narratives as a judgment for their behavior so that the Israelites don't go on and adopt those same practices. So when you're asking why did he make this vow, I think there are two possible reasons. One is that he has fundamentally misunderstood who God is and what his heart is like. That is one possibility. But actually another one, and the one that I actually think is more convincing when you read the text, is that perhaps what we're reading about here isn't quite the human sacrifice that we may have thought it to be or that uh, your translation of the Bible may imply it to be. And and I think it's I think that actually what's happening here is that he doesn't promise God an actual literal human sacrifice, but rather it's a metaphorical sacrifice sacrifice. In other words, it's his way of saying, God, if you grant me victory, then I will give over whoever first comes through the door of my house into total and complete devotion and service to you. Their life will be for you, not for me and my household. We see other examples of this kind of metaphorical sacrifice in scripture in uh, Exodus 29 or Leviticus 8. We read about Aaron and his sons, the Levites. They're given over to God and um, as a metaphorical sacrifice of a burnt offering, meaning they're set apart for him, not that they're literally burn or think about the story of Hannah who, who dedicates her firstborn son Samuel to God who becomes a prophet or again similar language in the New Testament in Romans Paul talks about us uh, becoming living sacrifices and I think the reason this reading actually is more faithful to the text itself is because not only does Jephthah's daughter willingly submit and voluntarily become this sacrifice which would be really odd behavior if he was asking her to die but also when when what she asks for she says first can I have two months to grieve and the thing we're told that she grieves for isn't her life but it's her virginity and then again when, when she grieves with her friends the things that they're, they're, they're grieving over is again her virginity and finally we're told that the way he fulfills the vow is that his daughter will never know a man so in other words, the cost doesn't seem to be that, uh, that that she's going to die, but actually that by by fulfilling this vow and giving her life over to devotion towards God and service of him, that would entail never marrying. And so that's still a costly sacrifice for her and actually for her father because she's his only child, which means this is a, a sacrifice of his descendants, his family line, which is a big deal in the Old Testament. But, but it does help to frame it because it means suddenly it's not such an extreme vow to make to God. Um, it, it, 
it, it perhaps makes better sense of why he does it because human sacrifice just doesn't jar with who the God of the Bible is and what he actually desires from us. And just one final thought here is actually in some ways, there's a parallel here between this passage foreshadowing what we see in the New Testament, you know, the same act of God, the father who actually gives up his only child in order to save others under his authority from defeat and death. So I think that's maybe a little bit of a clue as to what's going on in this particular text. Thank you so much, Joe. Um, I just, I appreciate your thoughtfulness and care with the Old Testament. Um, you are indeed a scholar. Uh, and one day I hope to uh, be able to recall Old Testament passages the way you do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Lots of memorization and hard Q&As. <laughs> um, moving to the New Testament, Dr. McCauley, um, why are Paul and Peter okay with slavery? It's such an easy uh, question. I thought I just floated to you so, so you knock it out of the park. Um, let me let me let me say a couple of things um, about the Bible and slavery. And what I want to say is, actually, can I can I use an analogy? Am I allowed to use analogies? I would say that like most of us here are on our phones or we're watching this on our computers. And all of us know, if you ask the question about how these computers were made, where they were built, we will say they're probably built in some third world, majority world country, probably under people who are underpaid. Most of us understand that our clothes were not made in these pristine environments, but they're made through the exploitation of other people. We know this. This is not something that we like have any questions about. It's plain. But none of us have actually made it illegal in our church to attend the church if you're involved in, in capitalism, even though we know that capitalism is complicit in the exploitation of the majority world. And the reason that we've not done that is because we lack the theological imagination to construct a world yet in which we can have our goods not at the expense of other people. And so what do we actually do if we're semi-conscious and semi-woke Christians? Well, we every now and then we try to buy some Tom shoes, some shoes that the exploitation is so rampant. That's what I want to say is companies can market themselves as saying we're the one company that, does, that doesn't exploit someone. And so if our conscience is bothering us, maybe we try to buy some recycled shoes. For the most part, we participate in the economy and we modify or we try to limit our complicity as much as we can, given the system in which we live. 150 years from now, people will ask the question, how was it possible that Christians couldn't find a way to buy phones without exploiting people? And what I want to say is that that analogy of understanding our moral complicity in a system that we can't think our way out of is similar to the world into which Paul finds himself having to do ministry. Paul finds himself in a context where slavery was as common as capitalism. And there weren't like two options, a pro-slavery movement and an anti-slavery movement. Slavery was the given of the day. That is not to diminish the reality of slavery. It's not to say that slavery in the Bible is good and slavery in the Greco-Roman in our context is bad. All slavery is bad. But what is Paul actually doing? Paul is in a context in which slavery is the norm. And he's trying to rethink what all of these things look for in, in the light of Christ. And so I think it's wrong to say that Paul, that Paul simply just loved slavery and that Paul wrote these letters to support the institution of slavery. 
Slavery didn't need any institutional support any more than capitalism needs institutional support. It just, the free market is what it is. This is what you actually see Paul doing in, um, in, in the actual New Testament. There's a couple of places I wanna, I wanna focus on. I'll just actually limit myself to one, maybe two. The first one is um, what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 7, verses 21 to 24. And you see in a, in a couple of places, Paul goes, if you were single, um, don't worry about being married. If you're married, don't worry about you know separating. Just remain in the condition in which you're called. He said, if you're circumcised, um, you know, don't worry about removing your circumcision. If you're a Jew, don't worry about, you know, I mean, if you're a Gentile, don't worry about circumcision. He says that. And then he says, and we won't get into the translation stuff, but trust me, this is the right translation of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 21 and 24. Paul says, if you are a slave when you are called, he says, do not let this trouble you. And what he means there is, and this is what you need to understand. He doesn't mean if you're a slave, don't worry about the fact that you're in slavery. What he's saying is anything that you're forced to do as a slave, you're not morally complicit in. So say, for example, you're a slave and you're assaulted. And I now, in some sense, guilty because of what my master's done to me. Anyone who's been the victim of assault has this sense in which they might be internalizing what is occurring to them. And what Paul is saying, you're not guilty for what the oppressor has done to you. So don't let that, that doubt about whether or not God loves you because you're a slave seep into your soul. But then Paul says, but if you can get free, get free. Why does Paul say that? Because Paul understands that the institution of slavery sits upon the it limits the freedom of the Christian to follow Jesus fully. And so Paul does say, if you have the opportunity to get free, get free. And he says it in a context in which they're both slaves and masters in the room. So the master hears Paul saying, you're not guilty for what the wicked master did to you. But if you can get free, masters, free him. And so that is putting pressure on the institution. And one of the other things, and we won't get into the rest of the passage, but I'm going to say this. We tend to look at um, the slave passages in the Bill of the New Testament theology around slavery simply around those two or three texts. We have to understand it is not simply what one or two texts say. It is about what Christian theology reveals about what it means to be human. And so if Paul says something like, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, you can't be bearing someone's burdens when their burdens are, when you're forcing burdens on people. When, when Jesus says, when they say love your neighbor as you love yourself, what, what would you want if you were enslaved? And so it's not simply these slave passages. It is all of the texts in the, in the New Testament. When the, when the New Testament talks about um, husbands, you're only supposed to have sex with your wives. What, is this, what does this do to the entire institution of sexual slavery that existed in the Greco-Roman world? And so it's not simply, if you're going to talk about slavery in the Bible, you can't look at three or four passages. You have to look at the ethics of the New Testament itself, especially when Paul says that a husband and a wife are together forever, and the children are supposed to be responsible to those parents and no one else. And so the very description of the family in the New Testament pushes back on the institution of slavery. And the fact that we know that that's the case is there's a document sent by slaves in Massachusetts who said, look, Paul says we have to bear one another's burdens. Therefore, you need to let us go. It is the, the, the guilt of the slave master not the guilt of the, of the African-American who's reading in these texts and seeing something about their dignity, that they couldn't see those things. We saw it, right? We looked in the text and said, the Bible says that I'm somebody. And so I, I want to say is that it is easy to 
take a passage here and a passage there and, and detach those from Paul's wider ethics and say the institution of slavery is, is completely compatible with the Christian faith. But if you ask yourself, is the Christian faith actually practicable in its fullness with the institution of slavery in place? The answer to that question is no. And the fact that it took the church 1,800 years to figure that out is the church's failure, not the Bible's failure. Mm. <sighs> Do you have anything to add? Uh, Dr. Vitale, or can I, is it safe for me to move on to the next question? Yeah, no, we can move on for now. If anyone has more questions about slavery in the Old Testament, I'm sure they'll write them in and we can, we can get to those too. <laughs> I have, I have, we're we're going to um, move to something quite, huh? oh, Never mind, go ahead. Uh, we're going to move on to something, another question from the Old Testament um, that probably is more uh, intense than this one. Um <laughs> Um, Old Testament question comes from Rhonda. Why does a woman's virginity seem so much more important than a man's? There are instances where it seems like a woman's sexual promiscuity is met with death, whereas a man can, can get away with it. Example, Deuteronomy 22, verse 28. How come a woman is forced to live with her rapist? Rhonda, thank you for um, bringing a really important question uh, for us all today. Um, I think oh, so much to be said to this question. Um, I think the place I'd want to start is to say we're not going to be able to make sense of the Old Testament unless we understand the covenantal and symbolic significance of marriage. And I think what we need to clue into here is that actually one of the central tenets of the Israelite faith is monotheism, to worship God alone, to be exclusively his. You know, the first commandment, I'm a jealous God, have no other gods before me. And so human marriage is actually meant to mirror that same exclusive relationship between God and his people as between a husband and wife. And, and so what that means is that marriage too is meant to be radically exclusive you know genesis 2 right at the beginning the blueprint for human life says you know you're meant to leave other binding relationships on you cleave to one another and become one flesh that's why for example in proverbs the woman is encouraged to be faithful to her husband not to take other lovers likewise the husband is encouraged to drink from his own well his own cistern to rejoice in the wife of his youth rather than in others um, i also think it's 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 so it's due to the symbolism that god takes human marriage so seriously if we wonder why there's such strict laws around it at all, then we need to ask what is so sacred, what is so holy, so important to God about marriage that he's protecting? I think it's partly that divine symbolism and significance. I think it's also the fact that it's the fundamental bedrock of the Israelite community and family. Every other relationship within the Israelite community centers around marriage and it stems from it. And so it's true that in the Old Testament, virginity is a big deal. And yes, the word is used 51 times the word for virgin and every time it is used to describe a young woman virgin in the Hebrew Bible. So you're absolutely right that it is specific to women in that sense. Now, now why is virginity so significant? As I said, because in part it symbolizes that exclusivity of marriage that, that is part of that, that giving yourself in marriage, that's when you become one flesh with someone else and with no other. Now, why women in particular, are they singled out here? A couple of reasons that come to mind. One would be partly, I think it might just be to do with the physical basis that it's easier to track whether a woman is a virgin or not you know biologically that's just more straightforward but secondly i think one of the key themes of the old testament is you know right at the beginning human beings are commanded to be fruitful and multiply so there's such an emphasis on the importance of procreation and 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 part of that is tracing the lineage of the family and the people of god that is really important in the bible but 
you can't track the family line if you don't know whose child a woman is carrying. So I think partly it's just a pragmatic thing of saying, if you're a virgin, we know who the father is when you step into marriage. And But what I do want to dispute is the idea that because that it's only women who are spoken of as virgins, that, that God therefore doesn't care about the sexual promiscuity or the virginity of men either. Um, and nor do I think, as, as Rhonda's vocalized, but also I think so many people come away from the Old Testament thinking this way. Um, I also want to challenge this idea that actually it's okay for men to be sexually promiscuous while women are put to death for it. I say that for two reasons. Firstly, because while the Bible may emphasize the wife's faithfulness, it also stops husband's unfaithfulness by taking taking away every single option of sex outside of marriage with another person. So I would say the Bible argues against polygamy or prohibits it for men and women, uh, that men are forbidden from having sex from virgins, from a betrothed virgin or another man's wife. Prostitution, whether cultic or or just outside of the cult, is, is forbidden, as is incest. So basically, men are given no options for anybody who they can legitimately have sex with outside of your own wife. So in that sense, they too are required to be virgins. And secondly, I actually would say when it comes to the Old Testament, it's the reverse, that actually it is the man who's held more accountable and more likely to be put to death or bear the responsibility for seducing a woman than the other way around. So let's talk about the text you mentioned, Deuteronomy 22, 28. And um, I agree at first hand, this seems like a really problematic passage, but let's back up a little bit. So firstly, this text follows on. It's, it's in the context of three examples that are given. And the first example is if a man and woman commit adultery together in a context where they are clearly both complicit in it, and then they're both put to death because that is the significance and the sacredness of marriage, that the, a, a, it's a gross violation and a life-ruining act to commit adultery with another person. Secondly, if it's a situation where there's a married woman, but her guilt actually can't be proven because there's no one who could overhear whether or not she's consented, actually she's the one who's presumed innocent while the man is held guilty. So in that situation, the man is the one who's put to death. He alone and not the woman who's given the benefit of the doubt because it can't be proven. So actually, if anyone is being put to death, it's more likely to be the man here than the woman. And so when we see those two examples, we can already see, remember I mentioned that question when you come to the law it's worth asking who is it protecting and i think when we're reading this text already we see two things are being protected one the sacred institution of marriage but then specifically the woman now the question is when we get to deuteronomy 22 verse 28 does it still hold true that the woman is being protected and i would say yes now, we need to understand Deuteronomy 22 actually goes together with Exodus 22, verse 16 to 17. Actually, Deuteronomy 22 is like an expansion upon that earlier text. Now, the earlier text says, if a man seduces a virgin who's not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay equal money for the bride price for virgins. And then Deuteronomy 22 says, if a man happens to meet a virgin who's not pledged to be married and rapes her, this translation says, and they are discovered, he shall pay her father 50 shekels of silver. He must marry the young woman for he's violated her. He can never divorce her as long as he lives. Now, a couple of questions. Firstly, when we look at these two passages, is it talking about rape? Well, actually it's unclear. In Exodus in particular, the emphasis is on seduction, and it seems to be about the psychological <laughs> aspect. 
And then in Deuteronomy, it doesn't actually use the typical word for rape, the very word that's used in the example above, in other examples, but actually the word used here is it's kind of like to take hold of somebody. So on the one hand, it's certainly implying he is physically initiating. But then on the other hand, later in the passage, the phrase that's used is they are discovered, which actually seems to imply that there's, they're both complicit to some degree in this act, that it has become to some degree mutual. So it's actually an unclear situation. Either way, it isn't given the death penalty precisely because a previous relationship hasn't been broken, like in the case of adultery, but also because it's not a provable case of rape. However, it is still a profoundly serious offense. And so what happens? Well, I think this law is intended as a deterrent for a man that actually can't just sleep with any woman and then just leave her and abandon her instead. If he's going to do that, he has to marry her. And not only that, but he has to make the full financial gift for the marriage. In other words, some guy can't just come along and try and uh, get away with, with, with giving less money to the family and to the girl by seducing her so he can pay less and due to the dishonor. Instead, he, he has to give her the full amount. And finally, he can never divorce her. The, bind, the marriage is binding and permanent for life. Now, I think the purpose of this, when you put it that way, is actually to ensure for the social and financial security of that woman. But what's important is that while the man is obligated, the same actually isn't true of the woman. We understand that when we see it in the framework of Exodus. She does not have to marry him. This is made clear because in Exodus, we're told the father himself has to also give his consent. Now, we're talking about fathers because as a young virgin, the girl is likely a minor. What it means is she can't be manipulated or forced into the marriage there's an extra level of care and protection from her family. So for example, if the man is already married or if he's unsuitable or if she'd be unsafe in the marriage, the, you know, the father says no, he gets to refuse. But even if they refuse, the family still get to keep the money. And that's important because ultimately that money doesn't go to her father, but that money is intended for her. It's for her safety, her provision and her care in life. In other words, what looks like a passage at first hand that is absolutely brutal and so hard to understand is actually all about protecting the woman in this situation. Now, it's not an ideal situation. Most of the laws you deal with in the Old Testament, they're case law, meaning they're dealing with our fallen nature when things have already gone wrong. And God is trying to manage the situation to preserve and protect people as far as possible in a messy, bloody, broken world. And yet what we see time and again in, in these laws is not about treating women as possessions or as if they're less than actually is about concern, care, and the protection of Pam. Wow. Um, yes, that is so, so helpful. Um, Joe, and I, and I love how you, uh, Esau, do you have, you, do you want to? No, 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 no. Okay. Let, let, her, let her cook. She, she, she's still, <laughs> let her dribble and cross people up and she got it. She got it. We're gonna move on to to a New Testament question. Uh, you guys are doing amazing, so thank you so much for doing this. I know our viewers are are enjoying this. Um, Esau, this is uh, another uh, one that's that um, people struggle with. It's the issue of tongues. Um, another another easy easy passage. Uh, what is the true meaning behind First Corinthians fourteen? Verses okay. 34 through 35. Can you explain why we shouldn't speak in tongues if there is no interpreter? 
I understand from the point of everyone not being able to understand, but what is there, what if there is an interpreter, but they're not acknowledging themselves or the church knows they interpret, but they won't. So uh, I well, think this actually, is just a, about the- It's weird because 34, 34 and 35 actually deal with women's silence in churches. So I don't know which one they wanted me to answer. <laughs> I I'll think, answer the one about tongues. Yeah, I, just- I think to, they got the verses wrong. Yeah. Okay. Let's let's do with tongues, because we okay. already dealt with women. I, yeah. In the Bible. I would say that um, I would say that Paul's point is worship ought to be intelligible to the people who show up. Now, the purpose of worship is the edification of believers, and if there is a context where people come in and they're not able to understand what's going on in the context of worship, um, then it is no longer serving the purpose. The worship experience isn't simply about you and this mystical relationship with God. It is in part also the the building up of the congregation. Now, as it relates to like the, the gift of tongues, there are a variety of different ways in which this is kind of manifest itself. Kind of people talk about a prayer language that you do privately. But I think what Paul is going to say is that if you're going to come into a gathered worship service and you're going to speak something that's unintelligible, nobody's edified by it. And if you actually see this in a couple of places, where Paul speaks not just in tongues, but also when there's prophecy. He said, look, you can't have three or four people standing up at the same time giving prophecy because nobody knows what's going on. And we need to have someone who can say, is this prophecy actually from God or was you up too late drinking coffee, eating burritos, and you made this up in your own head? And so Paul's whole point is the church needs to be in a place where people actually learn the faith. My pastor used to say this. He used to say, you boil water as hot as you want. And no matter how hot that water gets, once you turn it off, it cools down. It's just water. He said, but if you put some, some vegetables in it and a neck bone, because we're from the South, and you turn that thing up and you boil it, once it cools off, you still have soup. And so what I'm, what I'm saying is that church ought not be simply an emotional experience, but it ought to be a place where the people are built up and edified. And so Paul's concern there is the edification and the building up of the church. Thank you. That is that is helpful. Um, we're going to move back to the Old Testament. Um, next question, um, Deuteronomy 28, 15. Um, and she says, Patrice says, I found this uh, very distressing. Um, just as the Lord, uh, verse chapter 28, verse 15, um, just as the Lord has found great pleasure in causing you to prosper and multiply, the Lord will find great pleasure in destroying you. You will be torn from your from the land you are about to enter and occupy. And that's the New Living Translation. Um, she says the idea of the Lord finding pleasure in destroying them because of their disobedience was really hard. Is there a way of interpreting that so that God doesn't look so horrible? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Thank you, Patrice. Um, I'll say some things and then I'm sure Isla wants to jump in as well. I, 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 did, I did my whole dissertation on Deuteronomy. A significant portion of my dissertation was on Deuteronomy 28 to 30. Okay. So, I'm you, just going to stand aside. You, need to go. <laughs> you go. You go. Here it goes. Do it. Here it goes. And, and, and this, is, this is a fundamental misunderstanding of what's going on in Deuteronomy. It actually relates to the, to the larger characters of God. So I'll say this as briefly as I possibly can. God is bringing the people of Israel into the land, and he's saying to them, listen, you got two options. You either 
you obey and you receive blessings or you disobey and you receive curses. And the whole point of this, the way this rhetoric worked was you made it seem so bad if you disobeyed that nobody would disobey. That's it's like in the same way your parents would say, you better not say one thing. If you do, I'll take away everything that you love and I'll put you in the corner forever. The parent isn't actually going to put you in the corner forever. They're just trying to con convey to you the gravity of what's going on. But as you read Deuteronomy, you see the following. This is what Moses says. You can read Deuteronomy 27 to 30 like a narrative. And this is what God says. I'm going to give you the blessings or the curse, but I'm sure I know what you're going to do, Israel, because I know you. We spent some time together. You're going to mess up. You're going to mess up. And all of these things that I said to you are going to occur. And so you're going to end up in exile. You're going to end up in slavery. But because I love you, I'm going to call you back to myself. So Deuteronomy 27, 28, 29, and 30 contain a narrative from I'm letting you in. These are your options. I know you're not going to listen. Therefore, I'm going to punish you, but I'm going to bring you back because I delight in you. And so you can't stop midway in the story and say God's real thing is I enjoy punishing people. But the reason this is important is because if you read something like Leviticus 18 and God says to the people of Israel, he said, listen. You should do what I tell you to because the exact same thing that I did to the people who were here before you, the Canaanites, I drove them out of the land for their immorality. I will do the same to you. And so one of the things that bothers us as Christians, and maybe we can talk about this later, is these issue of the conquest narratives. And we say, well, how can God do this to the Canaanites? But the thing you have to understand is that what happens to the Canaanites also happens to Israel, and he predicts it when they come to the land. In the same way that God uses Israel to punish the Canaanites, God then uses Assyria and Babylon to punish the Jewish people. And it is only, right, you find yourself trapped in this circle of curse. God shows grace to you and you mess up and it, this cycle over and over again until the Jesus breaks the wheel. Jesus is the one whose death ends this cycle of opportunity for blessing, failure, curse, exile, God restores you, you do it again. Israel is trapped in the cycle of sin until the cross breaks the wheel. And so what I want you to understand is Deuteronomy 28 to 30 articulates this cycle of human sin that is ultimately pointing to Jesus's, as Paul says in Galatians 3.13, is the one who bears the curse for us to redeem us from the curse so that we can be a part of God's family. Mm. Mm -hmm. That's helpful. Dr. Vitale. So, I mean, that's so good. And um, I, I think one thing that stood out to me from the sentence in particular, which Patrice, I think maybe was what was standing out to you as well, is just that word pleasure and how can you take pleasure in the blessing and, and pleasure in the judgment as well. And I, I, I used to wrestle with this really personally, actually, um, as a teenager, because, you know, my kind of mode of operating was, you know, why shouldn't God just forgive everybody? Isn't that what the loving thing to do is, right? Isn't that what we're all taught in Sunday school? So why can't God just practice what he preaches? Um, if he has to dispense justice, why shouldn't he hate doing it? And, you know, the thing that changed my thinking on this that helped me understand it was when um, one of my closest friends went through the horror of, of being raped and, and seeing her live through that and then the impact that it had on her life, the way that she went um, from, from, you know, being just uh, someone who was super outgoing to hating her body, punishing herself by not eating, going from one messed up relationship to another, the guilt and shame that she felt for something that she had no reason to feel guilty for. You know, I watched this happening to her and I was so angry 
that, that she was feeling this way for something that she herself hadn't done, but also the fact that the person who did it to her got away with it and they were never held accountable, that there was no justice. And I think that's when it hit me that if I love my friend so much that I cannot stand to see her mistreated and violated and abused, how much more would a God who loves each one of us more than we can possibly imagine be for the ways that we wrong and abuse and violate one another? Um, you know, we think of love and judgment as sort of opposites, that if God is loving, he shouldn't um, take pleasure in judgment. He shouldn't feel good about dispensing justice. But actually, that just doesn't make any sense. They go hand in hand. If you love somebody, you can't just sweep it under the carpet, say no big deal. I'm just going to let you violate people this way. There has to be judgment for those things. And so it suddenly made sense to me that, you know, I, I think we get that in our culture as well, don't we? I mean, we live in a world where the human justice system is so broken and time and again we see people get away with things they should never have got away with and we're so fed up and frustrated we long for justice and when we finally see justice done in a human court of justice we celebrate we don't celebrate the crime we don't celebrate the wrongdoing we don't celebrate the fact this has to happen i don't think god does either you know in ezekiel 18 it says god says do i take any pleasure in the death of the wicked no but that they should turn and be saved that's his heart he you know he hates that people go to that place and get to that place where every individual he desires salvation and hope that's what jesus comes to bring and yet at the same time i think there is a sense in which we can understand why as the upholder of justice and the one who loves people far more than we do there is a sense of righteous anger and of rightness when god dispenses his justice and brings it about and i think that's what we're seeing here it's not that god wants people to go wrong it's not that he wants to pour out judgment but i do think it's part of his heart that that love and judgment aren't opposites but actually the, the you know justice is an expression of true love i think that's the heart of the bible like Esau was saying, you know, we see the love and justice of God running all the way through from the Old to the New Testament, culminating at the cross of Jesus. Um, and, and I think that's something that actually, as Christians, we, we, we should hold on to. We shouldn't be ashamed of a God who actually wants to dispense justice, because that's what the whole world is crying out for. With, you know, with Abraham, that cry of, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And he ensures us that, yes, he will. The human justice fails us. Divine justice is not going to fail. And I think that that hope for the victim is something to hold on to when when they have nothing else left to hope for that god is going to do what is right i think um i'll say and i'll try to be really brief that if you look at the actual old testament you don't see israel making one mistake and god saying that's it i'm going to blow you all up being actually all of the prophets that entire section of the bible is god sending servant after servant after servant after servant saying Please, please, please don't do this. Mm -hmm. And as you read it, it, you read the you read the book of Kings and Samuel, and you see repeatedly these people who are failing, and God is saying, "My heart is not judgment." And even the parable that Jesus talks about, when he says um, the parable of the tenants, he says he sent servant after servant after servant, and they did not listen. And he says, "I'll send my son." Mm -hmm. The whole point of it is God is not sitting in heaven waiting for humanity to mess up so that he can then smash them and be glorified in the smashing. God's heart and desire is for the salvation of humanity and the sending of the prophets, even in their strong words of condemnation, calling Israel back is a manifestation of love. And Jesus is the ultimate display of the fact that God's end is not judgment because when God finally comes back, 
he does not come back in the first place as the rider on the right horse dipping his feet in blood. He comes back as the son who dies for us that we might be reconciled to God. Mm-hmm. But in the end, there will be an accounting of human uh, of human wickedness. And the exploitation that we see, those wrongs will be righted at the end of all things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so good. That's why I love where it says in um, John 3 that you know God didn't come to uh, condemn the world, but to save it. Right. And that's why I love in Romans where it says that God is both the one who's just, but also he's the justifier, you know, that he fulfills both of those and and no one else could do that. And that's what I think is so beautiful that the justice of God holds true, but his mercy is, is so much greater. And and I think that's an amazing message. Right. I know I like, I want to get into the New Testament. Come on in. in. Brilliant. We're about to move to the New Testament. We're going to take this question and another question and then we're going to be be out of here because we're we're almost at our 90 minute mark um and we're sorry we already kind of i already apologized ahead of time that we won't get to everyone's questions because we'll be here for days maybe months um what uh this is new testament what about the issue of remarriage in matthew 19 and mark 10. Okay, can I, um, I, I want to do that? I want to talk about I want to talk about Philemon, but that's okay. I'll answer okay. the question about marriage. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna I didn't get a chance to do all of my my slavery stuff, but that's okay. Okay. There's a whole chapter on it. You can hate it or you can love it, but there's a chapter called The Freedom of the Slaves where I talk about Philemon and Old Testament passages and plug the book. Plug the book. Yeah. Make it get no, the book. Oh, sorry. It's called Reading My Black African American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. I want to talk about Philemon, but I got to act right. <laughs> So, <laughs> Matthew chapter 19, and what, this is what I want you to understand. So, the Pharisees come to Jesus. This actually relates to slavery, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch me time together. <laughs> okay, uh, go ahead. Matthew 19, and, they, and the Pharisees come to Jesus, and they ask Jesus, under what circumstances can a man divorce his wife? And Jesus says, um, basically, in the beginning, it was not that way. God created the man and woman who lived forever together forever. And then the Pharisees say to Jesus, well, then why did you have it in the Bible at all? And Jesus says, um, because of the hardness of your heart. So what Jesus is trying to articulate here is that when you think about marriage, and this is not, I'm not we're going to leave the question of people, like all of the causes for divorce aside, right? We're going to put this to the side. We're going to actually talk about what Jesus is trying to articulate here and how it's important as a hermeneutical method. What Jesus is saying is the purpose of marriage is for man and woman to live together in community, the two becoming one as a manifestation of God's covenant love. So the passages in Deuteronomy are what happens when things go awry. They're an allowances for human sin. But when you start thinking about marriage, the first place that you turn aren't the exceptions to the rule, right? And so coming to Jesus, asking the question, under what circumstances can I get a divorce, is what these people are asking, is not the place where you begin to think about a theology of marriage, which they didn't ask Jesus about. They just said, well, what are the exceptions to the rule? And Jesus says, well, what is important is what God intended. And so what he is saying is, we have to understand the purpose of marriage. And then in another another context, we could talk about the exceptions to the rule. The reason this actually relates to the issue of slavery is that the the hermeneutic works the exact same way. People say, well, look, there's a passage in Deuteronomy that says you can enslave people. But then Jesus might say, well, then what does the creation narrative say? The creation narrative says that we're made of the image of God. What does the image of God 
imply that one person should enslave another person. There's an African-American, I think his name is Ernest Black. He said, you talk about enslaving a man, it is like trying to enslave the sunrise. It's an impossibility. And so what I want to say is, the question isn't whether or not what this passage, that passage says, it is what did God intend when he created us? And when God created us, did he intend us to exploit and enslave one another? The answer to that question is no. When God created the institution of marriage, he said um, it, it, it existed so that we might learn something about God's own character, the two becoming one. Now, in a fallen world, you're going to have divorce. And here are the reasons in which they might occur. And Paul gives an account in, in First Timothy, I mean, um, First Corinthians chapter 7 and some other possible um, cases. And that's just reality, but that's not where you start. And when Paul talks about, or when Jesus talks about the hardness of heart, he's not saying that everyone who's involved in the divorce is equally sinful. That's not what he's trying to say. He's saying that every divorce at some point involves someone sinning, right? It's either the husband or the, um, the wife cheating or being emotionally abusive, or maybe even the, the couple receiving bad counsel and someone who had authority over them rushed them into a marriage in which they in which they weren't ready but at a certain point the breakdown of the marriage is rooted somewhere if you trace the story all the way back to some manifestation of human brokenness it doesn't mean that if someone has committed a divorce they're the worst person that was not committed a divorce if someone has been divorced they're the worst person ever there's no way for god to forgive them but it is to say that divorce exists in human society because of human brokenness, but that's not where the Christian starts the story. The Christian starts the story at creation. Thank you. That's that's helpful. We're going to move to our final question, and I'm sure both of you will have something to say about uh, this question. Um, it's from uh, Savannah from YouTube. Um, I am new to studying Christianity, but wondering if God hates human sacrifice, then why did he ask Abraham to, to sacrifice Isaac? I know he ended up presenting a lamb instead, but why did he even say that to begin with? Yeah. Well, Savannah, thank you for this question. Um, it's a really good one. Uh, there's a lot that could be said on this. I actually did a whole podcast episode on this question. I have a podcast called Ask Away that I do with my husband. So feel free to check that out for a more thorough answer to your question. But um, what's interesting in this passage is we're told, we're told information right from the beginning as a reader that Abraham doesn't know because we're told that God tested Abraham. But then we hear these harrowing words that maybe the worst words in the whole Bible where it says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. And immediately we're like, God, what are you doing? This is horrendous. Uh, atheists love to point out this passage as, as an example of child abuse. Um, it's really hard for us to understand. Um, a couple of things, even in the very asking here, it, it's worth noting the language uh, because in the Hebrew, firstly, when God asks uh, Abraham to take his son, it doesn't just say take in the Hebrew, but actually it's a qualified word that, that turns it from a command into a plea, like a tender plea. It's basically God's way of saying take please or take I beg of you your son and then we see the empathy of God he says your son your only son the one whom you love which is immediately ringing bells for us because we we know someone else who's referred to that way in the New Testament don't we um but so what is God asking here because he clearly understands the depth and the nature of what he's asking
asking in, in the tender way that he even approaches Abraham. Well, I think what we're seeing here is kind of a parallel of Abraham's life. So first, Abraham is told at the beginning, like, go into a land that I will show you and, and set out and trust me and have faith. And then this passage again says, go to the, to the land and, and have faith. And, and the difference here is that when God first asked that of Abraham, Abraham basically never really trusts God, which is ironic because in the New Testament, you know, he's known as the father of faith. And yet what we forget is it took him a really long time to get there, to have that faith. So firstly, you know, God tells him to set out by yourself, but Abraham doesn't. Abraham takes his nephew Lot instead as kind of an insurance policy, just in case he needs him to fulfill the role of foster son. And then along the way, when Lot leaves him, he then adopts his household steward, Eliezer, as his heir, because he still doesn't believe God's promise that God himself is going to provide him an heir. And then again, you know, we find that later on, Abraham and Sarah still haven't conceived. And so what does Abraham do? He takes Hagar, his maidservant, um, instead uh, to try and make God sort of fulfill the promise by taking another woman to wife. At every point when God is asking Abraham to trust him, Abraham consistently has this backup plan. And finally, he's reached the point when we get to this story where he's well over 100. So it's taken a long time where we're told that Abraham has, has finally become this man of faith and we see that in his response because for the first time Abraham doesn't challenge it he doesn't have a backup plan he doesn't ask questions instead he immediately responds to God by getting up the next morning going loading his donkey and setting out with his son now, a couple more details just to give about this particular text. So firstly, we're seeing Abraham really demonstrating deep faith for the very first time. But secondly, I think one of the problems people have with this passage is when we read it is that um, we're kind of assuming that, that Abraham doesn't really have an expectation of what God is going to do here, that he doesn't know. He thinks God is, is going to make him kill his son. And yet the way that Abraham is talking here shows that actually that's not the faith that he's putting in God. Actually, the way Abraham talks is, is he tells tells his servants to wait for them because he and Isaac are going to come back together. And, and Hebrews in the New Testament actually gives us a bit of a clue in this passage where, where it says that um, he, of Abraham, he who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it's through Isaac, you and your offspring will be reckoned. And we're told why, because Abraham reasoned that God could even raise him from the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. So I think all this to say, people get confused what the story is about. They think it's about the kind of faith that um, that that is being celebrated, where you know you'd send someone to the gas chambers during the Holocaust and then use the excuse I was just obeying orders, or the kind of faith that celebrates flying people into buildings. It's not a kind of faith that celebrates in this passage. It says, "God, I'm going to follow you, even if you're not good." I think rather what is emphasised here is God saying, "This is about um, Abraham saying, God, I'm going to follow you because I know that you are good." It's, it's about trusting a God, not a God who breaks his promises, but, but this is the God who's going to keep his promises and that he's going to keep his promise to Abraham somehow, that he's going to bring his son Isaac back, that his life will not be taken from him. He's not believing God for the death of his son, but he's believing him for the life of his son. And I think that's absolutely crucial. And it's that kind of faith that God credits to Abraham as righteousness, that, that holding on to the goodness of God, even when everything logical within you 
says God is doing something else here. And, and I think why go up a mountain in this way? Well, I think it's a form of protest, you know, because God could have just issued a, a law that says, you know, don't sacrifice your children. And he does that later. Um, but it's so part of the ancient culture at that time that actually God here is doing something way more memorable. He's taking Abraham up to the very place of sacrifice called Moriah, which means, you know, the place of provision, the place where God provides. And in that place, the very place where these heinous crimes are committed and children are put to death, God uses that place to lodge a protest as saying, I'm doing something completely different in the very place of injustice. I'm demonstrating a different way, a way of provision that I'm going to make for you. And, and I, I think it's staggering at this point that suddenly we see those echoes coming back in where God has talked about, you know, your, your son, your only son, the one whom you love. And who is Jesus Christ to us? Well, he is the only son of God. He's the one whom we're told God loves and whom he's well pleased with at his baptism. And so we see that provision of God being made. And I just think, isn't this an astonishing echo that what God doesn't ask of Abraham, he actually provides himself. You know, imagine that that journey of the father and son going up a mountain together, you know, the son carrying the wood upon his back. And that's Jesus Christ. And, a, you know, a lamb caught in the thorns in the thicket, like a crown of thorns on his head. It couldn't be a more clear parallel. So this is foreshadowing what God is going to do in Jesus Christ, precisely because He's not going to ask it of Abraham. He won't ask it of any other human being. He's the God who provides out of mercy for us and does what we ourselves cannot possibly do, which is make a way to God through our own provision. And so I think the very text that looks to us on the surface like abusive is actually foreshadowing the most incredible act of love humanity has ever seen. Actually, this is the first time in the Bible we, we hear the word love in Hebrew, you know, your only son whom you love. This is where it first appears. And I don't think that's a coincidence. When you look at the ultimate example of love, this is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. <laughs> um, I don't have anything to add. I mean, she 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 nailed it. So I'm just going. I'm, I might pass the plate, but. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Lisa, Lisa, your okay. audio is gone. Oh, okay. Okay. We can hear it now. I can hear it now. <laughs> I didn't realize I I didn't realize that he hit me, but so I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry. Thank you so much, Jill. Thank you so much, Jill. Thank you so much, Jill. You, you definitely. Uh, I know you deserve a I know you deserve a place to hash out. We really do that in England, so I don't really know what that is, but also. <laughs> somebody take somebody take Joe to a black church. <laughs> Please. Um, so we're gonna end with just like we said we wanted to provide a framework for people because there are so many different texts that you're gonna come in contact with. Um, that you're gonna read and you're gonna be like, oh man, I don't know what to do with this. Um, one of the frameworks we provide is in here through eyes of color and contextualize God. Um, if you go to chapter six in this book, we use uh, every chapter in this book really comes from a uh, it's curated from the podcast, and so. The podcast that we use for chapter six, dealing with places of contention, problematic passages, comes heavily from some of the things that Joe and Esau said. If you go to chapter six, you'll see them quoted in this uh, <laughs> numerous times. <laughs> so uh, definitely pick that up. If you just, this is written on a seventh grade level. Uh, if you you say, man, I can't, I can't jump into the commentary or all of these thick books 
uh, at first start here and then move out. Um, we have some recommended resources in addition to this. We give you how to study scripture in the first chapter and show you the different genres in scripture that help you navigate problematic passages, along with early African Christianity, Black presence in the Bible, um, Black uh, contributions of Black Christians, all in through Eyes of Color, available at g3project.org. Shameless plug. Um, <laughs> I want you all to have your final thoughts, and please tell people where they can connect with you. Um, I'll go Old Testament first. Sure. Um, well, thank you so much. It's been really fun to be with you this evening. And um, I think just as a final thought, I just want to encourage you. I think so often when we're doubting or struggling with faith, we run away. We shy away from the Bible. We we step back from the hard passages because I think we're scared of what we'll find, kind of like Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz. We think we'll pull back the curtain and it won't be real. There'll just be this little old man controlling everything, but there's no good God behind it. I would say run the other way. If you're finding it hard, don't pull back, dig in. Uh, there's nothing shameful in having doubts and having hard questions about God. God loves your questions. Questions are how you get to know somebody. The more you want to get to know them, the deeper your questions are and, and the harder they might be because you're not going to shy away from even the tough bit things about their character that other people run from. So I would say just, just bring these things to God, wrestle them out with him. Don't give up, read, read scripture in a faith community, in a group, if you're struggling by yourself, get into some of these commentaries, a couple of books that I find really helpful. This is like the mega giant one, which um, yeah, only read if you, if you really, <laughs> really feel like it, but it's <laughs> fire, which is good because it's called Flame of Yahweh, but it's understanding sexuality in the Old Testament, and it's amazing. Here's the more straightforward, easier book. It's, oh, can you see? Where's my camera? Uh, is God a Moral Monster by Paul Copan. Such a good book on the Old Testament. If you're struggling with the character of God in the Bible, that is a great way in uh, to wrestling with these questions. And if you want to get in touch with me, um, you find me on uh, Twitter somewhere on Instagram, though. I never remember my handle, so sorry about that. <laughs> we have, we have your handle there. up. Great, because uh, I have no idea. Um, and uh, but I work for RZAM, so you can always contact me at rzam.org through the website and someone will forward uh, your email to me. It's been so good to be with you guys tonight. Thank you. And um, Joe and her husband, Vince, um, two amazing people, amazing couple, both PhDs. So that's always cool. Um, <laughs> they have an amazing podcast called Acts Away, uh, where they answer uh, all kinds of questions um, all the time on their podcast. So make sure you subscribe and check them out. They're amazing people. They're amazing scholars, but they're even more amazing people that I'm blessed to know. So thankful for them. Um, Esau? Um Yes, I am aware, really aware of my own inadequacies as it relates to capturing the full um, beauty and complexity of scripture. And so I want to say that um, I am not the arbiter of truth and that if I did not, just because I did not answer the question to your satisfaction, it doesn't mean there aren't answers somewhere. And so I want to encourage you to be skeptical of your skepticism and really pursue these questions to the end and not simply assume that Christians who persevere in the faith are those who haven't asked hard questions, who haven't seen this YouTube video, but that take seriously this idea that it may be the case that we wrestle with these texts and these passages and we come to the conclusion that the God that we see revealed in the scriptures is the God who we can trust and in, into whose hands 
we give the entirety of our lives. And I want to encourage you to take that seriously, not just my faith, speaking as an African-American, but the faith of my ancestors. When I talk about the ancestors, I'm talking all the way back to the book of Acts, with the Ethiopian who, eunuch who converted at the beginning of Christianity. There's always been Black people who've been drawn to Jesus through the cross. And I think that testimony matters, and I would encourage you to consider that testimony. Um, I think if you want to get in contact with me, I guess enroll at Wheaton College. <laughs> <laughs> Um, because I'm not what I'm what I'm not about to do in these Twitter streets is debate you. I get paid. <laughs> I get paid to have debates. So if you want to debate me and ask me more than two questions, you can sign up in week ID. You get two tweets, Playboy, and that's it. Okay. <laughs> but you can't find me. You can find me. You can find me on Twitter. You can potentially find me on Instagram. I think I have a I have a Facebook page too. Um I may not add you. <laughs> As a friend, because some of y'all get in here and talk reckless in my missions. So <laughs> I, have, I have a Facebook page, but you can go there. I love you. Jesus loves you. But where I'm from, you just can't come. You just can't come and talk to black people any kind of way on the Internet. And I feel the same way. So I might block you, but if I block you, go in peace. And he sends you away from me. <laughs> Thank y'all so much again. This has been a blessing. Thank you all. Uh, for watching uh, uh, problematic passages, we'll have to do this again. Um, but I know that I'm I'm looking at comments and seeing so many people say they were blessed tonight. So thank you so much for all your study, your hard work, and hours to to be able to answer those tough questions. We greatly greatly appreciate it. Um, remember, here at the Jew Three Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it. And you can get more info about the Jew Three Project at g3project.org. You can also become a monthly partner because every gift helps equip. God bless. Have a good night. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew Three Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.